0: Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoy it. If you're enjoying Pirate Living Podcast and all the content we bring to you each week, you can support us and buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash pirate living.
1: Other ways you can show your support as well. Subscribe and follow Pirate Living Podcast, rate and review our show, and share this podcast with your friends.
0: You can find us on Instagram at Pirate Living Podcasts to keep up with the latest
1: episodes, awesome guests, and bonus clips. Pop in and say hi. We love chatting with fellow pirates. You can also reach out to us uh, to learn more about our individual and group coaching programs. And as usual, keep creating good trouble. And now, on to today's episode.
0: Welcome to Pirate Living Podcast. We are your hosts, Kristen and Karan. On this podcast, we are highlighting ordinary people living extraordinary lives. These are pirates who take small, bold actions daily to create social change. Pirate life is all about rebelling and breaking the rules for good. Creating lasting social change starts by first breaking our inner rules. After all, the hardest rules to break are your own. The pirates we highlight
1: have dedicated themselves to creating good trouble. Today we're talking with Dr. Carolyn Klein. Carolyn is a registered psychologist and sex therapist here in Vancouver where she runs and co-owns the West Coast Centre for Sex Therapy. She has a team of 20 psychologists and counsellors who provide evidence-based sex therapy to folks here in British Columbia and the Yukon. increasingly frustrated with the unhelpful and inaccurate beliefs about sexuality that people hold. She's moving beyond challenging the ideas in a one in, oh my God, I can't read today. (laughs) She's moving beyond challenging these ideas one-on-one in her office and is taking them on on a larger scale. So Dr. Klein, we are excited to have you here with us today and to learn more about what you're doing to challenge the social norms when it comes to sex.
2: I'm excited to be here. Thanks for the invitation.
1: So as we mentioned, uh, we have been using Google to help us write uh, poems about our guests. Uh, new thing, we ran out of pirate jokes, so we're moving on to poems. Uh, so this, uh, would you like to hear the poem that Google wrote for you?
2: <laughs> I really want to hear the poem. Yes, I've <laughs> never thought there would be a poem about me. So this is pretty cool.
1: <laughs> All right. Dr. Carolyn Klein helps people with their sexual health. She is a voice for change. She helps people to understand that sex is healthy and normal part of life. She's helping people live better lives. Thank you, Dr. Klein, for all that you do. You're a beacon of light in a dark world. You're a voice for the voiceless. You're a champion for change. Thank you for all that you do. Dr. Klein, you make the world a better place.
2: <laughs> Written everyone by should be Google. using. Everyone boost. should use Google to boost their self esteem. That's not, <laughs> right? that very glowing. Yeah.
1: You are a beacon of light. Mm-hmm.
2: So- I don't know about that. I think a lot of people would say I'm bringing the darkness back. But
1: <laughs> well, we would love for you to tell us the story of how you became this pirate and this beacon of light. Um, and yeah, how, how you got to where you are today?
2: (laughs) I mean, I'm going to start by saying I, I never think of myself as a pirate, but now knowing your podcast, that's pretty cool. So I feel pretty honored to be here. Um, I mean, I think there's uh, lots and lots of things that have led me to where they are, where I am today, but I think the biggest pieces are that, um, quick backstory. My mother was raised in a really, really conservative home by her mother, in Colombia, which is a very uh, Catholic, conservative country. And my grandmother, uh, her name was Gertrude, and she was true to her name. There was not a sexual part of her being, because I've never met an exotic dancer named Gertrude. And so my grandmother, Gertrude, raised my mother to know nothing about sex and nothing about her body. So when my mother got her period at a fairly young age, she thought she was bleeding out. And it was a horrific experience for her And as my mother continued to go through life with no sex education information, she had numerous other stories that were, you know, somewhat funny at their best and pretty horrifying at their worst. My parents tried to do much better with my sister and I. They uh, got what many parents do. They got the book that you just kind of leave on the bookshelf for kids to learn about sex. And the funny story there is that one year my grandmother Gertrude came to visit from Columbia, and when she left, she didn't leave alone. That book disappeared with her, never to be spoken (laughs) of again. Um, But my parents in that sense really did try and have a, a different message for us. And yet at the same time, being raised with such conservative messages around sexuality I still grew up getting some of those conservative messages. So I always say my story is that I grew, came into this world curious and pleasure-seeking, whether that's food, whether that's my warm bed, it doesn't matter. I was curious and I wanted things that felt good. So Kron, you know this, probably at the gym, I complain the hardest because I don't find anything <laughs> pleasurable about the gym. I only do it because <laughs> it's in line with my values to stay healthy. Um, but normally I, I, I'm oriented towards things that that feel good and being curious and pleasure seeking as a kid. I also discovered pleasure in my own body, but got the message that that was not okay. And even though my parents had tried to be sex positive, that had been so ingrained in them that masturbation was not okay. And I was too young to think of it as a sexual act or as masturbation, but we shame children and we say that they're doing this inappropriate sexual act. Even though there's no sexual thought to it, they're pleasure-seeking, just like my daughter now asks for a back rub before bed, you know? And so I grew up with a lot of shame in that sense, but also the openness to be able to explore that further. And I was just really curious. And through high school, I started asking questions. And my friends would often say, Carolyn, we don't have to talk about sex so much. But I always thought it was so interesting how little we talked about. And I guess the other piece is then once I started into my own sexual journey with other partners you know, now I look back on it, and I'm like, I did not have great sex early on, because I didn't get good information about my own body about sexuality, what healthy sexuality was. And I think it's really unfortunate that we are raising kids to have to first have negative experiences before they have positive ones. And now as a psychologist, all I see every day, all day is people coming into the office distressed in some way. I mean, as psychologists, that's our big thing is where's people's anxiety, their shame, their grief, their sadness, And in my world, it's just that those are in relation to sexuality of do I like sex too much? Do I not like it enough? My partner doesn't feel I love them because I don't want to have sex with them. My body's not doing what I want it to. I don't feel good in my body. And most of it is not that there's anything wrong with the person or their body. It's wrong that our society didn't teach them that they are normal, that they are healthy, that everything that's happening is totally okay. And so they don't know how to navigate it. So that's kind of seeing that over and over again and now seeing the distress I now really feel strongly that we need people to speak openly and more boldly about sexuality to help others to be able to have a language for that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah and I've heard you talk about how um, it was uh, almost uh, accidentally that you got into uh, sex therapy Um, and I'd love to hear kind of that story and of how you got into it when you when it came to schooling, and I guess what made you stay in that field?
2: Yeah. So um, I went to UBC, University of British Columbia, um, after high school, and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I thought maybe I wanted to go into law, work with offenders, And I ended up taking a psych 100 class. And it was super interesting. I was so engaged the whole class. And so by the end of the school year, I went to my professor and I said, Okay, if I wanted to enter psychology, this is so interesting, what would I need to do? And he said, Well, you'd have to go to grad school. And for grad school, you would need to get involved in research. Uh, start working in a research lab, getting experience with research. And I said, Oh, do you have a lab? And he said, Yes, I do. It's a sex research lab. So it was complete fluke that that was my psych 100 professor. And he became my supervisor through my master's and my PhD. And uh, I got into that lab. And I just found it fascinating. I thought every single thing was interesting. There was nothing in sex research that I felt bored with. And I didn't feel the same way about everything else in psychology. Some things I did find kind of dry, but sex, I thought is so interesting that other people are so upset or distressed by this, that other cultures do this so differently, that it's changed throughout our history. So that was kind of what kept me in it was just, I thought it was super fascinating, super cool.
1: Uh, I'm curious what... What happens in a research sex lab? I have no idea. I can't even picture what's
2: happening in there. I can tell you what happened in ours. I mean, it depends always in the field of of sex research what they're doing. I can tell you some of the things that happened in ours. So some of the research we were involved in, we would have uh, human participants, volunteers come to our lab and they would sit in a room by themselves. We'd be in the adjoining room. Uh, with an intercon system, and we would show them erotic material on a TV screen, pornography. And while they're watching the erotic material, we measure their physiological arousal. So for women, we have a device called a vaginal photoplethysmograph. It's this tampon-shaped device they self-insert, and it measures minute changes in blood flow as the uh, person is becoming aroused, as blood is moving down. And we test out different things. So, for example, for my PhD research, it was looking at the role of the endocannabinoid system. Uh, do people who use marijuana lots versus little versus not at all, is there changes in their physiological arousal? Because people for so long were saying, oh, pot makes my sexual experience so much better. And we're like, well, physiologically does it, or is it that it disinhibits or enhances other sensory experiences? So we would do that kind of research, for example, and same thing, our lab was not with men. But... Um, There are other labs that have a penile plethysmograph, and we'll look at things um, to do with what happens to their physiological arousal when you show them images of children, or when you show them same sex or bonobo monkeys having sex, what happens to our arousal levels and why so that would be an example of what happens in a research lab.
0: Now I'm curious too, uh, did you, what did you find out with the, the cannabinoids and the sexual arousal? Did it make a difference?
2: Yeah. So I'll answer it. And then I will say mm-hmm. that the research needs to be repeated now mm-hmm. that marijuana is legal and we can do the research differently because at that time uh, it was not legal. And so we could not have approval to actually give our research mm. participants marijuana, which meant that all we could do from an ethics standpoint was recruit people who said, oh yeah, I use pot a lot versus those who said, oh, I've used it before, but not regularly versus those who didn't and hope that the people who use it a lot had used it the day of our study, we couldn't ask them to, we could just say you're allowed to ethically. And we didn't know what strains they were using, we didn't know what dose. And so the research was the best we could do at that time, because this is a long time ago now that I did my PhD. And at that time, what we found was that physiologically Marijuana does not help physiological arousal. It People had a better physiological arousal response when they had clearly not used marijuana either ever or not for a long time. Um, again, whether that research would show up exactly the same way today, if you could control for different strains and doses might be different. But at the time, it was that it's not doing all the best stuff for physiological arousal. It's disappointing to many mm-hmm. pot users. I, I was going to say, I think many
1: of our <laughs> listeners may be disappointed to hear this. Yeah. <laughs> well,
2: you know, what I always say about that is at the end of the day, what matters is your subjective experience of sex, right? It, you know, it's more that we were interested in it because we were one, interested if it did help, would that impact our treatment of sexual difficulties? We needed to know, did it make a difference? So again, that research needs to still happen. Um, but at the end of the day, if people are saying, look, when I get high, I have better sex well, then it won't matter what anything, what anybody says physiologically, it's your subjective experience. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. And so what kind of work are you doing now with your clients? Like, what is your focus on
2: Yeah, so um, in in, here in the clinic, when I work with clients, my focus is extremely broad. The only clients that I don't work with is anyone under 19. So I am not trained um, to work with youth and children. And I don't work with people who are actively involved with the legal system, because you need to have uh, very specialized training there so that you don't end up doing something that the courts are going to perceive a certain way. So I work with people from 19 all the way. My oldest client today, I think, was 89. And I work with individuals, couples, and other partnership configurations. So people who are polyamorous and open relationships will sometimes have three or four people in the office. And um, it's everything from the most common is desire discrepancies in couples or individuals who are worried about their desire. Again, either too much. So the sex addiction, do I like sex too much? or the too little, is there something wrong with my libido? Is it hormonal kind of question? Uh, We work with people with concerns about their sexual functioning. So premature ejaculation, erectile dysfunction, problems reaching orgasm. I work a lot with people with sexual pain conditions and then really working a lot also with people with sexual shame, whether that's from sexual trauma or whether that's just from society's messages where they're saying, is it normal that I like this? How do I get more comfortable expressing X to my partner? How do I get more comfortable in my body? Whatever that might be. So we see people with any kind of sexual concerns at our office, except for the ones involved in the legal system. Interesting. Oh, I have to think of a question. Okay,
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I had something, was okay. gone. <laughs> well, I have
1: something.
0: Okay, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. First, like going back to to like when you were saying you're raised uh, with the the book. Um, here, here's here's the book. We're not even gonna like say anything when give it to, giving it to you. Like here it is. It magically appeared. I had that same type mm-hmm. of. Um, this was my introduction to sex outside of what like the the basic sex education in a Christian school, which is like as minimal as you can get it. Uh, and so that was my introduction that and uh, I remember one time. My parents also gave me these tapes that were all about abstinence. And so was, um, and then at the end of listening to the tapes, my dad thought, I think he was proud of himself. Maybe he thought it was funny, but I got this oversized shirt that said, I'm not doing it. I was like, oh, (laughs) this is now pajamas. (laughs) So so, um, with that though, too, like it led to a lot of not knowing really anything um and it like to the point of about four or five years ago I did deep dive into personal development and we were in in a one point where show, sharing things that felt shameful to us like things we didn't share with other people and the thing that came strongly to me was I feel like everybody knows more about sex than me I've been and at this point in time I was married 12 years I'm like I've been married all like this time and I feel like everybody knows more than I do And so, yeah, for me, it was just like this, it was shameful in that way of like, I don't feel like I can talk to anybody about this. Like I've heard from my husband at times that I like, it feels boring, like having sex with me, different things like that. And I just don't know what to do. So yeah, no, hearing that you're working with people and helping them get past these things, like this is something that I wish I had known more than five years ago too. And it's still something
2: for me too that I'm like okay learning more I want to know more (laughs) yeah totally Kristen Mm -hmm. I love that you're sharing that Um, it's funny because uh, I was asked on another podcast recently uh, about similar things I'll share the similar story Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, the person was asking you know where does this shame start from does it start at a young age and I gave the story that a year ago I was speaking at an inspirational summit here in Vancouver and the day before the summit I needed to go for microphone check um, and it happened to be on a Friday where I was responsible for picking up my daughter from school and her friend and my daughter's now nine, but she was eight at the time. And so I picked them up and dragged them with me to the Queen Elizabeth theater for sound check. And they sat in the empty seats while I did it. And afterwards I called them up to go out the back door. We'd come in and, uh, and to go home. And my daughter sweetly says, oh, mommy, I wish I could come tomorrow and listen to you speak. And I said, oh, I think that'd be really boring. And she said, why? Cause you're going to talk about sex all day. And before I could answer her little best friend said, isn't that inappropriate? And, uh, and, and I had this proud moment. Cause my, before I, again, c- I could respond, my daughter jumped in and she said, no sex can be really healthy for adults. And I was like, yes, I've taught her well. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, it is that thing that even to talk about sex is considered inappropriate. I wasn't showing sex. I wasn't having sex in front of my kid. It was like the idea that you would even talk about sex somehow, this little girl had already been given that message so loud and clear. And similarly, um, I was recently on a trip and talking to family members that I hadn't seen for a long time, relatives at a family reunion about sex and about the importance of talking about all the body parts, talking about the clitoris. And one of my lovely family members said, well, why, why do kids need to know about the clitoris when they're like eight years old, six years old, seven years old? And I think that's really interesting because I could say, well, why do they need to know what part of their body is the elbow? Why do they need to know what part of the body is their earlobe? Like, because we're teaching them. And the problem for me, it goes even further that if you don't teach them, then they end up having sexual experiences that are not actually pleasurable. And is that what we want? Is it that we want all these girls to have sexual experiences later on that are not great? So again, there was a research that came out recently when I was at a conference Asking people to retrospectively go back to their first time that they had sex or lost their virginity, however they wanted to define it, and what do they think about that first experience and the data was really clear that men looking back on it, they looked at their first sexual experience and losing their virginity as like great, it was a transition to manhood, this was a good thing and they looked at it with fondness, but what did girls do? They looked at it with a certain sadness, the idea of loss. And even our language, you lose your virginity, right? And they, they would say, like, I wish I had done it a different time. I wish I'd done it with a different person. I wish I had known where my clitoris was to say, hey, touch there. Don't just, you know, move it in and out kind of thing. And so we're setting people up to have bad experiences. We're, we're setting them up to not have a good sexual relationship. So the last thing I'll say about Kristen is the irony is that the people who often come into my office, sex holds a lot of meaning. There's like the idea of if we're not having sex, does it mean we're not in love? Does it mean there's something wrong with our relationship? And sometimes it doesn't mean that at all. Sometimes it means that people have not learned how to have great sex. So of course, they'd rather watch Netflix, where you've got people who've gone to school to make great movies. You know, they've had more education to make the movie that's entertaining than we've had the education to make great sex that's entertainment. So people are having a lot of pretty mediocre sex because they don't know how to do it in any other way. And they don't know how to talk about it to evolve their sexual relationships. We've got to change that because it creates huge distress that becomes more existential of like, should we not be together? Do you not love me? Are you not attracted to me anymore? Why aren't we having more sex? And, and that's where again, the grief and the anxiety really starts to kick in.
1: So what makes great sex?
2: Well, uh <laughs> I can say two answers to that. The first one is it's going to be individual for each person, kind of like what makes a great meal. You know, some people are going to want it super spicy. Some people are going to want lots of vegetables, whatever it might be. So the one part I can't answer because it's going to be individual. But here's the other side that I'm going to say. Great sex is sex that is absent of any negative emotions. Number one, like no shame, no disgust, no anxiety, whether that's anxiety about your own body or whether your partner's into it. So great sex does not have negative emotions in it. And great sex is memorable and entertaining. If people again, like so many of my clients have really non memorable sex, it's always at the end of the day, the last thing they do, they brush their teeth, they wash their face, they get in their pajamas, they lie in bed. And now they have to both, you know, undress themselves, they don't even undress each other lie there and start rubbing genitals like rubbing the genie out of the lamp. That's not great sex because they're trying to will something that isn't naturally there. Great sex is like memorable where it's like, do you remember that time we did this? And it was so funny. We didn't even orgasm, but we just had such a good time. Or do you remember that time? Oh my God, it was so hot. I could barely like contain myself. That's great sex where there's something that was memorable and actually creating intimacy because intimacy is about going through experiences together.
1: Yeah. And that was going to be my next question. Like, where does intimacy play in the role of like having great sex?
2: Awesome question. Awesome question. Um, For a lot of my clients, I would say intimacy is the wrong word for the sex that they are having sex is the least intimate thing they do together. And what I mean by that is they put their bodies together, but it may as well be a gynecologist putting a speculum in it, you know, like there's just because there's genitals being involved does not make it sexual. And each partner is actually in their own head One partners worrying, you know, do I look too fat? Um, is my am I going to come when my partner wants to the other partners worrying, am I going to lose my erection, do you actually find me hot, so they're not even connected with each other, they're more connected to their own anxieties. And so that's not intimacy at all. So one of the things I say to people is there's no behavior in life that is intrinsically connecting eating dinner is not intri- with someone is not intrinsically connecting if both people are sitting on their phones and not even talking to each other and same thing sex all you need to do is talk to someone who's been sexually assaulted there is nothing connecting just because you have two body parts connecting what makes for intimacy is when people go in with the right intentionality and presence with one another and the openness and non-judgmentalism to be like hey i want to be here with you right now what do we want to do that's going to be super fun or super loving or whatever it is? And then those two people are re- or three or four, whatever it is, are really there together sharing in an experience without fear of judgment or any kind of negative repercussions either in the moment or afterwards.
1: So yeah. how, how do we get beyond that shame uh, so that we can have uh, this non-judgmental Intimate sex with our partners.
2: You guys are doing it. Like the fact that you're having me on your podcast. <laughs> <Yeah. right? laughs> like we're doing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> right, you know, now. Yeah. right now. Right now, like, right? The, like the opposite <laughs> of the t shirt that you were given, right? Yeah. Overcoming shame for any psychologist, whether it's shame about sexuality, whether it's shame about how our bodies look, whether it's shame about public speaking. Everything is about opposite action. It's about saying, you know what, instead of me hiding and withdrawing, I'm going to actually approach rather than avoid. And so that's, again, my piece. I'm really privileged, you know, this white, hetero female uh, with a PhD who can take the risk and say, yeah, I'm going to talk really openly about sex and role model for other women, that it's not inappropriate, it's not unprofessional, that this is okay, it's evidence-based and has so many health benefits. I'm in a privileged position that I feel like I do need to get out there and say it. And as I do, maybe some people are going to say, Hey, honey, I listened to this podcast and it was saying that actually sexual fantasies like this don't mean anything about me and that it's totally normal. So I'm going to take the risk and I'm going to share it with you. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to talk to you about like, honey, actually, when you have sex with me this way, it's not entirely doing it for me. Can we try it in this different way? Cause I think that'd be super hot and I think it'd be super fun. And I want you to be the person I do that with. You know, if I can role model the language for people, if I can role model that it's not unprofessional, you know, I see so many professional women who are like, it feels incongruent that I'm like this doctor or lawyer by day, and then I'm supposed to go home at night and and be this sexual thing as if that's again, dirty, like we've still got this idea that it's unprofessional to be sexual to play. And yet they would have no problem getting on the floor and playing dolls with their kid, you know, like they'll play in certain contexts and in other ones, it's not. To overcome shame, we've got to just actually approach rather than avoid. We've got to help normalize it. We've got to challenge some of the ideas that are out there that are so wrong, where, where the research is so clear that people hold beliefs that are not true and that are really harmful. Um,
1: just going back to the idea of play, again, I've heard you say um, on another podcast that like... Uh, our fantasies are a way for us to play as an adult. And we're there. Um, well, I'll actually, why don't you explain <laughs> what you meant? Uh, it's probably better than me trying to explain. Oh, right. I love that you <laughs>
2: listen to the podcast. Thank you for listening. Um, so, so, yeah, so I mean, sex is one way that adults play in all social species, like dolphins, bonoba monkeys, it doesn't matter. It is a way for play. And I always say to people that my daughter when she plays and now she's nine so she's a bit older but when she was a bit younger and doing tons of imaginary play she never played that she was the nine-year-old daughter of a sex researcher or or a psychologist she always played all these other things and she needed stuff that was going to get her heart racing that was going to get her imagination going that was really creative because the rest of it, she already had in her day to day life. It's not play to play being a nine year old who has to make your bed, you know. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so same thing for me, when I want entertainment, I don't watch TV shows of people mopping the floor, because I already have to go home and do that. I watch TV shows of people doing things that I don't do. (laughs) And things that I would never do. And things that just kind of get my heart racing of Oh, my God. And you watch what people are scrolling on TikTok or social media. I mean, watching, people's favorite movies. It's never the boring and what their life is. It's always the entertainment of what's not their life. And we don't make any judgments about that. In fact, we celebrate people saying, Oh, my God, you've got to watch this show on Netflix, it is so crazy, or it is so crass, or it is so funny. But in sexuality, we dumb it right down. And we want that you're just entertained by just staring at each other's eyes no fantasy, no mental creativity. Somehow that's thought to be more intimate, that something's wrong if you bring in the creativity and play. And then people don't have very good sex because now they're just depending on physiology and and, and physicality, which again is like you may as well have the gynecologist putting the speculum in, you know, there's no difference anymore. You're just moving body parts. So we need the mental piece and we need to give people permission and the, the knowledge that just like the TV shows that you watch are there to get your heart racing and have you entertained and remembering them. So are your sexual fantasies. They are the stuff you don't already have in your relationship. They are the stuff that is somehow titillating and naughty and taboo, just like the TikTok videos, because that way your heart starts racing and it sends blood down to your genitals and it makes everything else work well.
0: thinking about entertainment and sex as well like if you were to look at entertainment for sex it's usually like really quick it happens really fast it's really passionately passionate and and nobody actually takes clothes off um (laughs) like most of the time you see like there's still pants on um and so it's it's funny too like what we see in media is like it's got to be really passionate like you're throwing bodies up against um walls or whatever and then it's over really fast. And um, then you might see the snuggling after. But yeah, it's interesting when you look at media. It's like, yeah, that's that is not really how it goes though either. <laughs>
2: and Kristen, can I jump on that and say, mm-hmm. you know, people get shown the two extremes. That's the yeah. one extreme of mm-hmm. the clothes is on and it's really fast. And then the other extreme is what's depicted in pornography, which is Mm the clothes is always off. So you never have to see the person even getting hard. They're already hard and wet and like ready to go to begin with. And it's long. It's Mm -hmm. 45 minutes or an hour. So the two extremes that people get is it should be super passionate And like, we don't even know like how they did it or what they did. Or the other one is, oh, okay, they're already ready to go right from the get go. And they last for this really long time. So we're seeing a lot of young men, for example, come into our office now. And that's a newer thing, worried that they have premature ejaculation because they think they should be lasting 45 minutes or an hour. And I always have to educate them. Could you imagine if the deer had to have sex for 45 minutes or an hour out in the wild? To procreate, like they would get eaten 10 times over. We were not designed to have sex for these long periods of time because biology didn't know that we were going to be living in houses in Western, you know, Canada, able to be safe from all the predators where we could sometimes have the luxury of an hour. People have all this misinformation based on these two extremes of not knowing what is healthy sexuality because no one's talking about it. No one's depicting it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I once dated a much younger guy than myself, and that was exactly what was happening. I'm like, okay, I'm tired and sore now. <laughs> like, yes. Yes. it does not. I can't go for an hour every yes. single time. I'm like, I'm like, it's okay if it's like a little shorter here. And uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's why I guess he learned from like videos and porn is that it has to go for these long durations. And I'm like, actually, I just would like to
2: go to bed now yes and I love again that you're saying that because exactly that I'm saying to these men have you asked your partners are they saying that seven minutes is too short or are they like you know what like this is good and of course I don't mean the full-on like lead up and the making out but like any actual penetration is not meant to go on for really really long when you think of mother nature it's not our bodies are not designed for that yeah
0: no, it starts to hurt after <laughs> <laughs> yes. like yes. beyond that point. It's like no, I, I'm done now. Can you pretend <laughs> <be done> to? too? <laughs>
2: totally. So again, we need to get that out there because these young men are having shame and then they're trying to last longer and it's not mm-hmm. to the advantage of their partners. <laughs> it's to no one's benefit.
1: How um how do you, do you find the huge difference between the men and the women that you work with at the clinic? And they're I I mean, other than, you know, the duration, uh, like what are some of the differences in uh, men and women in the way that we kind of see or or struggle with, that, with sex?
2: Yeah, I love that question too. Uh, there's a few that I'll quickly point out. One is that for a lot of men, and again, I'm speaking generalities, it's not true for every client, but for a lot of men, their sexuality is really tied to their whole sense of being a man. Whereas for women, I see fertility more often associated with their sense of being a woman. If a woman is having sexual concerns, she might feel guilt. She might feel like she's not doing what she should for her partner. But it's not that shame of like, there's something wrong with me. And for men, it's like, I'm not a man. No one's going to want to be with me. Like, like, for some reason, we've really tied sexuality to men's manhood and we even call their penis that their manhood right um and so I see a lot of pressure on men to be really like powerful sexual beings that doesn't actually lead to great sexuality and and back to what we were saying earlier great intimacy and for women I see a lot of guilt and a lot of feeling like well, shouldn't I do this for my partner? My partner has needs and it's kind of like, but what about your needs? Like you also have needs and you might sometimes have needs not to have your body touched. So that's one thing that I see is women have guilt, men have a lot of shame. Again, that's a generalization. There are definitely crossings there. And then the other one is that we need to get the information out that our biology does impact the way our bodies are sexually. And so we now know that for many women or people with vulvas, um, they do not have what we call spontaneous desires. So in a lot of men or people with penises, what happens is the role of testosterone in their body leads them to have desire without a lot of triggers being necessary. A lot of men, you can say that, yes, they will have thoughts of sex while they're doing something completely non-sexual, like pushups or washing the car. And for a lot of women, it's like, yeah, no, I don't just think about sex spontaneously when I'm washing the dishes or putting my kids' laundry away. I need some sort of cueing. And we now know that that's normative. For the longest time, even when I was trained, we were diagnosing men and women the same way, saying that there was something wrong with the woman, if she didn't have this spontaneous drive for sex. And so us recognizing that there are these biological differences, and that women will often need some cueing to get their brain kind of going. And again, I always say as a generalization for men, If you know that they're attracted to you, you can go up, slam them against the wall and grab their crotch. And they'll be like, this is super hot. This was my fantasy. For women, you go up and you slam her against the wall and grab her crotch. And she's probably going to, you know, wriggle away and be like, what are you doing? And it's going to feel really Mm -hmm. offensive. Because for a lot of women, they need that outside in, they need the mental and get there mentally and feel connected, they need to have the touch and the necking and everything else. So one caveat, I say to that, Obviously, if you've been flirting all day or you're excited for the date, then you can do that because you've had that on-ramp. You've been building that anticipation. But it's not exactly fair to expect the same from men and women when it comes to sexuality. And that leads to so much grief, because especially in these heterosexual couples, the man will feel like, why don't you want me? Why are you rejecting me as I come up while you're cooking and I grabbed your butt or I grabbed your boobs? And he feels like you were you were into that early on. Why aren't you anymore? Are you not attracted to me? Do you not love me? And it's like, well, now you're expecting it in the middle of cooking, whereas before it was in the middle of a date. The whole context was mm-hmm. different. You were cooking, you were cooking it as part of a date, you'd showered, you'd shaved you'd done everything you were ready to go and for a lot of women they're thinking is there something wrong with my hormones why am I not feeling it because they don't understand the power of context
0: that cooking part really has me laugh because every now and again my husband will come up behind me while I'm cooking I'm like no (laughs) (laughs) give me some space right now I'm cooking I'm focused like (laughs) yes I so I laughed at that one because it's very real in my house at times.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and I don't know about your husband. You don't have to comment if you don't want, but like mm. some of them, they really feel like what's wrong. Cause early on I could have done that. And now I can't like, is it me? So again, that shame kicks in and that mm. fear of like, do you not love me anymore? Are you not attracted? Cause we just aren't talking enough about it to make it clear what's going on.
0: Yeah. Um, thankfully we have in the back last couple of years started talking. We learned to talk more about this. Not something either of us were taught growing mm-hmm. up because we both came from very conservative books handed to us, households. Um, But yeah, thankfully now we can talk about it. But about five years ago, it wasn't something we felt comfortable talking about. And so, yeah, now at least it's like, hey, I'm cooking. I'm not feeling up for that right <laughs> now. Like, I need a little space.
2: <laughs> <laughs> totally. Awesome. Again, I think the power of communication is so important mm. if we're going to have great sex. There's nothing in life that we do well without communication. Mm-hmm. Nothing. You know, like it's not like people are like, yeah, let's get married. Let's just not talk about it. Let's have kids. Let's buy this house in Vancouver. Let's just not talk about it. So, this idea that sex is something you should do and not have to talk about it is bizarre to me because it is a social behavior and all social behavior requires social skills. And those are all learned. They don't come naturally to us.
1: What would you say then uh, with the work that you do is your social rebellion, the thing that you're trying to change?
2: Well, I mean, again, I don't always think of it as social rebellion, but I will say, I mean, I, I love that we're talking about it this way, but I will say that what I'm trying to definitely challenge people's ideas on is some of these beliefs, like sex is natural, you shouldn't have to learn how to do it, or it's inappropriate to talk to kids about sex, um, or uh, that, that it's inappropriate to have certain desires. So in some ways, my rebellion is to say, no, let me get onto every podcast that'll have me, let me get onto every stage that'll have me. And let's talk about the research and let's talk about why these beliefs are so harmful and why we're setting people up for higher rates of abuse and higher rates of negative sexual experiences. So I think it's just like, be that woman who talks really openly about sex, which is still in some ways frowned upon that there's something inappropriate to do that.
1: Mm-hmm. So, do you find like, especially as a, as a woman that it's frowned upon, like, is, mm-hmm. is there um, like a double standard with your male colleagues?
2: Yes. Yes, I would say so. Absolutely. I mean, I think, again, I'm in a privileged position. I think, you know, in my profession, people will kind of let me talk more because I'm a sex therapist and psychologist, but absolutely for women to just start at a dinner party talking about sex uh, with strangers who aren't their best friends, it would be like, that's weird. That's really inappropriate. Why did she start talking about that? For men to make a a sexual joke at a dinner party would not be frowned upon in the same way. Women's sexuality, I would say, is still very much the idea of you should be desirable. And yet make sure you don't want sex too much. Make sure you don't have too much of it because somehow then your worth goes down. Somehow then you are frowned upon. And it's, and it's in the language, you know, again, like we all know that most people don't actually in a, in a derogatory way refer to men as sluts. If they do, it's in a joking way, but women are called sluts. And women are called frigid. They're, you know, men, we don't see that language. So we do shame women's sexuality on both ends of the extreme. You don't want it enough. You want it too much, much more than we do for men.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've seen enough on like, even just social media, like uh, videos and clips, and talking about like this high value woman, and she's, you know, she has a low body count, and all of these kind of ideas of what a quote unquote high value woman is supposed to be about. And where do you think that comes from that, like, women are supposed to, like you said, have some experience, but not too much, versus like men that it's, uh, um, it's it's more socially acceptable for them to have as much sexual experience as they want.
2: Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I wish I could distill it down to one thing. I think it comes from two main sources, but I think there's probably a million nuance to it. One thing is I think that it comes from, yes, to some degree, patriarchy and to some degree, the idea of controlling women, um, that women for a long time in our history did not have the same rights and ab- abilities for anything. And in some ways, what bigger way to show your rights than to go and use your body in the way you want to and, and then to potentially, you know, have this man feed your children that aren't actually his children, you know, it's like the ultimate rebellion. So I think women have for a long time had their bodies and still to this day, I mean, again, most of the legislation around abortion and stuff is made by men. Uh, You know, when we're looking at the states, it is still a lot of men controlling what women do with their bodies. Um, So I think some of it is control. And I think some of it is well meaning. I, I see so many parents who definitely have no intention of controlling their children, they believe mistakenly that if they can make sure their daughters don't have those sexual experiences, that they will have a better outcome. There's still this belief of don't give it all away. There's still this belief of you won't learn great intimacy if you practice sex lots," which again is a bizarre notion to me that the more you practice it, you're actually going to get worse at it. You know, (laughs) if you have more sex, then you're going to have worse sex. I can't figure out how people got to that place. But there's this somehow this still belief that if you keep it really sacred by barely doing it with anyone, then it's going to mean so much more and be so much better. So some of it is people's well-meaning beliefs that just haven't been challenged, that just haven't been like, what are we doing here by getting people to treat sex in this way that actually leads them to again have painful or shameful sexual experiences? But what are some of the
1: kind of more out there beliefs that there are uh, and uh, in terms of like sex and sexuality like what are some of the like big ones that you just want to like yeah Mm -hmm. that are a little bit more out there the
2: big myth well I don't know when Mm you mean out there I don't know if my first answer that comes to my mind is enough out there maybe as we keep talking I'll go more out there (laughs) I mean I think that the big myths the ones that I see over and over and over again that just have to be challenged one is that um love and sex go go really well together love and desire because they don't they're in complete opposition so again this idea that if i love my partner and i'm attracted to them then i should want to have sex with them all the time so then again people feel horrible when they don't another one is that sex is natural and therefore we shouldn't have to learn how to do it and as i always say we human beings there is nothing that we come into this world knowing how to do naturally We have drives for certain things, drives for connection, drive to eat. But as I say, all you have to do is talk to a new mother with breastfeeding, and you'll know that baby has to learn how to breastfeed. It has a drive to learn, but it doesn't know how to. And then the baby will have a drive to move its body, and it has to learn how to do it. And it has a drive to walk, and it has a drive to connect, and you have to teach it manners. And so there's nothing that we do naturally. We have to learn how to have great sex. Um... What are some of the other ones? I think um, the idea that sex itself is somehow bonding, which leads to, and this is like a whole nother uh, topic that's probably too big, but people again, right now, even though we have birth control, even though we have have all these ways to make sure there won't be negative repercussions from our sexuality, still somehow hold the idea that sex should be the sacred thing between two people, even when the two people have differing drives or different ideas of what great sex would be. The idea to open up the relationship and allow sexual experience with other people is still really frowned upon for the most part. A lot of people are like, there must be something wrong in the relationship that they have an open relationship rather than the idea of, we don't think there's anything wrong that one person wants to go sailing. So they take their buddies out when their partner doesn't want to go. We still are in that sense, shaming sexuality and saying, actually your body is not your own. Once you're with a partner, your body belongs to that one partner. And if you do anything outside of that, then you're an awful, selfish being rather than isn't it selfish that the other partner is saying, nope, I'm the only one who gets to have your body. So we hold a lot of beliefs that, again, don't actually Mm -hmm. celebrate sexuality, that don't actually celebrate bodily autonomy.
1: Hold on one second. I just had some Uh couples walk in.
0: (laughs) and my internet's being a little choppy so I hope I'm coming through
2: (laughs) you are right now yes yes
0: okay good Karan thought her internet was the issue but now all of a sudden mine wants to compete
2: It's the internet saying it, we don't want to keep listening to this lady talk about sex. No, we want to hear. <laughs> stop,
0: stop, 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 stop. <laughs> don't ignore the internet. We want to hear. It. <laughs> and well, going on myths too, I'm curious um, uh, what are some of the like age related myths too in regards to sex? Because, for example, like coming from very conservative um, places, it's been more along the lines of like as you get older, you don't want to have sex and just different things you hear. And now, I'm hitting my 40s. And I'm like, I want, you know, things, yes, things are changing. But I also want to hear like, I can get into my 80s. And still, I think I froze.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, you, nope. didn't fr- fr- all, you didn't freeze at all, Kristen, you didn't freeze it all. Yeah, again, awesome question. You're right, right now, the way we treat sex is that either there's the extreme that sex is for the young and able bodied, or there's the extreme that you should use the Viagra, you should do whatever you can do to make sure you keep having sex in the exact same way that you did in your 20s. We don't talk enough about how do you evolve your sex life so that it is in line with what your body and your life circumstances actually want. Um, I watch a lot of couples come in in their retirement years. The kids have flown the coop and they've got time and they're struggling with their sexual intimacy because they're still really stuck on sexes penis and vagina sex. And as we age with menopause and the same thing with men through those years, It takes a lot more stimulation, it's a lot harder to get that erection, keep that erection for women with menopause, the estrogen levels lead to more vaginal dryness and a thinning of the tissues. And it's not, you know, penis and vagina intercourse is not always gonna be the hottest thing for that body anymore, but they've bought into this idea that, that's sex. And now they're grieving that. And you don't see that with other things. They're not grieving that they're not jumping on trampolines anymore. They're not grieving that they're mountain biking down the steep mountain anymore. But with sex, we haven't actually helped them to be like, that's going to change as you're going through those years, you're going to switch to a lot more activity that isn't insertion focused, you're going to switch to a lot of activity that is using other parts of the body and more mental stimulation. So we do need to help people to think of sex as not just intercourse. And we need to help people to recognize that what feels pleasurable is going to change across the lifespan. Mm him back
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's always there's always a, a a doggo interruption uh on this podcast usually oh. it's in the morning and this time we're just having an afternoon interruption
2: today. that's okay <laughs> yeah. it's like sex sometimes you get interrupted and then you got to jump back into it <laughs> exactly
1: mm-hmm. so what is some like practical things that like our listeners can do to um Create more connection and more intimacy with their partner and just have better sex after listening to this podcast. Turn it off, listens first, turn it off. Uh, yeah, all
2: the way to <laughs> the end. All the way to the end. Or then, if they want to listen while they're having ex- sex, that's okay too. That's okay. Yeah. That's, I, I don't actually, that feels weird. <laughs> Ron doesn't want to be there, turn it off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, um, so I think there's a few things that I would recommend generally without knowing people's specific circumstances. The first one is great communication. If listening to this podcast leads people to communicate more, they're going to have better sexual experiences for sure. The second one is get out of routine. bring in novelty,, uh, make sure that you're making it memorable and different. You are not gonna have a great sex life doing the exact same thing every single time at the worst time of day. Um, those would probably might be my, my two biggest things that if you're going to change your sex life, make sure you can talk about it so you can figure out how to change it in a way that makes it better rather than worse. And if you're going to change your sex life, make sure you're actually changing it. Make sure you're actually doing things differently. You can't expect it to change if you do things the exact same way you've always been doing them. So those would be my big overarching principles. And then, of course, people can get into the nitty gritty of how do you, you know, work on becoming a better kisser and how do you work on, um, you know, being able to talk dirty to your partner in a way that is hot for both of you and doesn't feel crass. Like then we can get into the nitpicky stuff, but the overarching stuff is communicate and change it up. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, communication a big thing. I,
2: think, oh. I mean,
0: you already said for every area of life, but definitely <laughs> there too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: I also yeah. feel like there's just also, uh, in my like humble experience, uh, that some men need to learn physiology
2: the <laughs> <laughs> and some women and some non-binary, yeah. like whoever, because again, I, uh, and I have to think because I've given another talk today. I'm, I'm hoping I'm not repeating myself here. If I am, let me know, because now things are starting to blend together of where I said what. But, um, but again, like, if young girls don't know where their clitoris is, how is the man supposed to find it? You know, if young girls don't know their bodies, I can't tell you how many women and I know I see a biased sample of people who are struggling with their sexuality. So I don't mean to say this is every woman in the world. But how many women come into my office and they've never held a hand in your mirror, so they don't actually know what their vulva looks like, and they're scared and disgusted to see it, Mm -hmm. you know, and so it's like, well, what's the probability that they really lay there spread legged so that their partner can really explore their body or sometimes their partner having to fumble under the sheets, like where are men getting the opportunity to really learn a body because again, Mm -hmm. Back to, Kristen, what you were saying, they're not going to learn it from the mainstream media where the pants are always on, and they're not going to learn it from pornography where no one's actually showing lots of the right kind of stimulation. It's all the kind of stimulation that just has the brain say, oh, I like the look of this, you know? I I think men and women don't know their bodies very well as a generalization.
0: And I'm curious, too, like how we get to that place because, um, I, I work with kids and, um, I'm realizing like, because it's more new in my life where I'm realizing like there's this natural starting to explore of with kids. Like I was watching a one-year-old and giving her a bath and, she starts poking at down in her, well, like around all the the area down there. And at first I just thought she was itching. And then I realized, oh no, she's in a diaper all the time. Like she is naturally curious and exploring like, what is this right here? Um, And I think that starts getting um, like, we're told even at a very young age, like don't, you don't touch, you don't touch there. Um, And I know too, as a teacher, like I had, kids, um, they're curious, they're five, like they want to know things. And we had to talk very much. Like we don't talk about or touch each other in the bathing suit areas. And this is how like we had to have it like as clean as we could, um, to try to explain like your curiosity isn't welcome here (laughs) because Mm -hmm. this could be taken wrong and somebody might go home and tell their parents, you know, so, all these things, I think the shame gets put there from so, so early. And um, yeah. So how would you recommend to that? You start having conversations in a more productive way, instead of saying like, no, you can't touch your body there. and No, you can't be curious about other bodies. Um, how do we start yeah. those conversations? Oh, I feel
2: so strongly about this. I'm so glad you're asking. Because um, again, this is where the parents are so well-meaning and yet are at such risk of causing harm. The research is so clear that kids who do not know their body parts and have not learned the language are at high risk of never saying when people touch them in ways that are not right. And I did an Instagram post once where I said, you know, if we don't teach kids that sex should feel good, how will they know to stop it when it doesn't? Mm -hmm. Um, So to be concrete, the way I talked to my daughter, and now she's nine, but the way that she was raised is, um, she was raised as she was learning to bathe herself. And I'd say, okay, make sure you wash your hair, make sure it would be like, make sure you wash your vulva, your labia, your clitoris. Like I would say the words. So she'd be like, Oh, which one's this? And it'd be like, yeah, that's your clitoris. That's your labia. Like, let's make sure we clean them. Just like we say, make sure you brush your teeth and your tongue and your gums. Like we're willing to say all those parts. And then we're not willing to say these other parts and actually talk about anatomy. And the funny thing is I did this, um, I went camping a couple of weekends ago and I took this awesome video because I've got awesome friends and they're the, the ones I'm referring to. They went camping. They're not sex therapists, but they said, Carolyn, we want our kids to know their body parts. And and I have this model vulva, realistic looking that I use in the office. And so they said, can you bring it and teach our kids about it? And I said, sure. And so the way I teach kids is let them be curious on their own terms. Let them ask the questions, let them So what I did is I put the model vulva on the camping table, picnic table, and at eight in the morning they come out of the tents. And then here's what was really interesting. They walked out and they saw the vulva sitting there. And unanimously, and I have it on video and I'd love to post on Instagram, but I think Instagram will shut me down, even though there's not a single word about sex. There's nothing about sex in the video. But what do these girls do? They come out of their tent and they go, ew. And then one of the little girls says, Carolyn, did you bring this? It's really funny. Actually, she right away suspected that I brought it. But then their curiosity kicks in because they're kids and they walk up to it and they're sitting there and they're touching it. And one of them goes, ooh, it's squishy. <laughs> and then they're talking and I said to them, oh, why are you guys saying, ooh? And I got this on camera and they're like, well, because it's gross. And I said, why is it gross? And we had this conversation. It was this awesome conversation. with, like, this is this. Amazing. And then my daughter again, because she's been raised, she's like, it's not gross. This is part of what made us. And you know, <laughs> she's typing up speaking. And then I was saying, like, do you know the parts of it? And then my daughter right away was like, that's the clitoris. And the girls were then talking. One of the girls thought the labia was called the shell. And another one thought it was called the gills. But like, because no one's teaching them, they don't know these things. And so in my ideal world, I know a lot of people don't have a vulva uh, model at home. <laughs> but <laughs> but in my ideal world, we would, as we're getting our kids to bathe, just like brushing their teeth, we would say, make sure you watch, wash your labia, your clitoris, your vulva. Or my daughter... When she stands at the bathroom mirror and she's looking at her mouth, she's going, ah, you know, what's our normal response? We say, oh, what are you looking at? So if I walk into the room and my daughter's sitting there spread legged, you know, as a little girl, I'll be like, what are you looking at? Like without judgment, rather than what are you doing? We don't do that. We help them be curious. We say, what are you looking at? And it's like, oh, yeah, that's your vulva, you know, and these are the parts that were involved in making you. And these are this is where your, your, your pee comes up. So we talk to them like we talk about every other body part. The problem with sex is we put sex in this special little box and we treat it differently than everything else. And then we expect it to be this magical, special, intimate thing. But in fact, we've made that pretty much impossible. So my big advice to parents is treat it like every other body part because it is. Kids don't sexualize things. Kids are just curious until they go through puberty. There's no sexualization. These are body parts like their gums and their tongue. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so interesting. I mean, you mentioned like Catholic school. I did, I did the Catholic school thing as well. And I remember sex ed through, through the Catholic school, uh, wasn't, wasn't awesome. Um, I mean, there's only so much nuns can teach you, I guess. Um, but, but, uh, uh, I do remember making a poster for sex ed, that said, pet your cat, not your date. Uh, so that's what I take away from <laughs> sex ed in, in school. But I, I guess I was lucky enough that my mom actually read the books to me that that she bought. Um, and it, it was so funny. You're talking about your grandmother, Gertrude. So I had a grandmother, Phyllis, also. Not the sexiest <laughs> name. And, uh, means, right? Right? and I, I just remember uh I was I mean I was quite young when I first got my period and uh I don't know where my mom was I don't know why she wasn't there but I was with my dad and my nana and I was sick for like two days and just like feeling awful and they kept me home from school and my nana was putting me to bed and I remember just uh I guess she saw some blood on my underwear or on on my pajamas and she's like her, her question was you haven't been poking around down there have you and it's like I don't know how like I but just got my change. mom right this now
2: you caused that right right Remember. like
1: you can't t- like you said you can't touch it you like it, it's 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 just so interesting how like and I, I hope that oh, I mean I don't have kids but I'm hoping that as like uh our generation, it becomes more and more open that we're more and more willing to be teaching our kids these things, like the proper names, what our body parts are. Like you said, I had no idea what the hell was happening. All I just knew was I was sick and in pain for like two days, and like stayed out of school. And then all of a sudden, now I'm bleeding. Um, and like, I, I hope that we have more hope for the future here, as like our generation has children and can teach them uh, better.
2: Totally. (laughs) Just just better. (laughs) Totally. And, you know, again, like I see a real difference in, again, how we raise boys. When boys are tugging at their penis, people kind of laugh at that, and they're like, oh, yeah, he tugs at his penis all the time. Mm -hmm. But a girl touches, and it's like we don't touch there. And it's Mm -hmm. sort of like if the message is that you don't touch your own body, then it's like, well, who does? You know, like Mm -hmm. who gets to decide – who touches your body, we're giving the wrong message there. And it's really harmful, which is your body is not your own to explore. Mm -hmm. And then it's sort of like the idea later on that, but you should make sure later on that you have sex to have those grandkids, and you should make sure Mm -hmm. you have sex to keep your husband happy and not cheating. And Mm -hmm. suddenly, we've given the message, this is not your own body, it's someone else's, but men, it's kind of cute and funny when they constantly tug at their penis as a little boy. Mm -hmm. Not so much as an adult.
0: No. I want to go back to this poster a second because (laughs) as teenagers in a Catholic school, was there really nobody that didn't get the pet, pet your cat, not your date that that is can go to masturbation there? <laughs> like, that didn't come out.
1: honestly I didn't even put it together I and I I made the poster like I drew a cat with a hand on it and like I had not put it but together you were not trying
2: point. to make a pun and say pet yourself you no, were not no.
1: <laughs> no. she should have
0: been though that would have been awesome
2: I mean, well, ironically ironically we could make the new pet poster which is pet your cat before you pet your date right and, and exactly. now it really is pet, pet I, your Let's
1: make that. right. that's our new our newest shirt okay. that's right that's
2: right
0: catch <laughs> your cat before you bite your day
2: that's right that's right it'll
1: be available in our stores as soon as uh, I'll, I'll get on making that as soon as kristen nice. figures out how to make it on canva
2: awesome awesome
1: uh, yeah any uh any advice i mean no you've already told us so much advice Um, I feel like most of our normal questions, you've already kind of knocked it out of the park. Uh, Anything that we haven't asked you that you uh, feel important to bring up or that we haven't covered that you want to talk about before we uh, kind of wrap up? Uh, It
2: it may not be new, but I'll just kind of highlight my big messages that I want to get out there. Mm -hmm. and, And one that I haven't said, but I just think is important because I just see a lot of women struggle with it and some men too. So I'll start with that one that we haven't covered at all. And that is if you're experiencing sexual pain, that is not normal and you should not white knuckle through it, even if your doctor said nothing's wrong. So for anyone with sexual pain, sex should not hurt, even if it's after having a baby and that should be investigated. Don't take anyone's word that you just need to have more wine and relax more because um, I just see that all the time. But the other stuff I would say is you are normal. Whatever you are fantasizing about, whatever you want sexually is all normal and okay. Now, obviously, behavior is a different story, we need to make sure we have consenting partners, all of that kind of jazz. But I just would say there is nothing that we as sex therapists, I can't remember the last time I was shocked by someone's sexual fantasy, you know, like they're all they all have certain themes that they somehow make your heart race, they somehow are taboo enough titillating enough that you get you going. So I would just say whatever it is, it's not going to shock any of us sex therapists. And so that means it's really normative because we've heard it over and over again. And if you can find it in porn, that means you're not the first person either because they only make porn that they know is going to sell. And so I just want to normalize people's sexuality and I want to give people permission to explore their bodies. And the final message is there's so much research now coming out on the health benefits of arousal and orgasm for everything from chronic pain conditions, migraine headaches, menstrual cramps, to now research looking at the mental health benefits, uh, to looking at inflammatory diseases. You know, for so long, again, we've shamed it that the researchers couldn't even get funding to do the research. And now it's like, you know what? Arousal and orgasm lead to a release of endorphins and natural opioids. And it, there's so many health benefits. So we need to go from the days of John Kellogg, who made Kellogg's cornflakes as an anti-masturbation cereal, thinking that if we made a really bland breakfast, people would kind of tame themselves and not masturbate, because it was believed that masturbation led to blindness and mental disorders and all sorts of things, we need to get to the place where it's not, again, even just play, where sexuality is as relevant for your doctor to ask about as saying, tell me about your nutrition and tell me about your exercise and your sleep. I would love it if doctors started to say, and tell me about sexuality. Tell me about what's happening for you with sexual intimacy, because there are health benefits. So we need to get away from that. This is just frivolous stuff. This is about our health. And it's definitely about our social relationships.
1: Also a great cure for insomnia.
2: Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, you're right. For sleep. Yeah. Tons yeah. of people masturbate right before bed because it helps them sleep better. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: The yeah. amount of like women in their uh, 40s, because that's primarily who I I work with that have trouble sleeping. And I'm like, have you tried an orgasm? Cause that always works for me. And they're like yes really? Um, uh, like, you just awesome. try it. you wake up at 2am, and you can't go back to sleep. I uh, yes. surefire why you put me back to sleep.
2: <laughs> but Quran again, let me give you huge props, right? Because most people are not saying that. And most mm-hmm. doctors don't have the safety yet of the research data, even though it's there to not be thought, Oh, my God, I'm going to get a complaint against the cop to the college for me saying to you, have you thought of having an orgasm? people would think that's so inappropriate that a doctor would even suggest that or for headaches Mm -hmm. saying, you know, before you try these strong medications with side effects, try masturbating, that would be thought of as an inappropriate doctor, because that's how much we still shame sex that we see talking about sex, even from you know, the fitness trainers and the doctors is inappropriate. So I love that you are pirating there. Like you're pushing the envelope and saying, yeah, hang on here. Let's look at the research and let's get people masturbating because it is going to help their overall health. Mm -hmm.
0: And Kellogg fun fact about him. He's from Michigan where I grew up. So that's uh, (laughs) any, any sign of like what the general idea around sex in the area where I grew up, Stephen Kellogg.
2: Interesting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Interesting. Nice. I didn't know that little fun fact.
0: Yeah. Um, he, we have, yeah, Kellogg has a factory about an hour from the town I grew up in, which Gerber baby food originated in the town I grew up in. So you know, we love our bland foods in Michigan,
2: <laughs> hopefully not bland sex,
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they might in Michigan, but i've I've moved away from that myself, <laughs> nice, nice. Uh,
1: so where can our uh, I was gonna say, where can our clients? I'm not at the gym anymore. Where can our <laughs> listeners? go and our clients go to uh, find out more about you and what you're up to. And uh, yeah, everything. Yeah,
2: sex so I, Perfect. So I am on Instagram trying to challenge these ideas about sex. So I am at DR for Dr. Carolyn Klein. And my name's uh, my parents gave my name a strange spelling. So Carolyn does not have an E at the end of it. So it's D-R-C-A-R-O-L-I-N-K-L-E-I-N. Or if you're interested in sex therapy or want to send me an email, you can contact me through the office, which is westcoastsextherapy.com. Awesome.
1: Well, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us and uh, sharing all your knowledge.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me. Truly an honor. Nice to be here.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Pirate Living Podcast. We really enjoyed our conversation with today's guest and hope you enjoyed it too. If you are enjoying Pirate Living Podcast and all the content we bring to you each week, one way you can support us is to buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Pirate Living.
1: other ways you can show your support as well. Subscribe and follow Pirate Living Podcast, rate and review our show, and share this podcast with your friends.
0: You can find us on Instagram at Pirate Living Podcast to keep up with the
1: latest episodes, awesome guests, and bonus clips. Pop in and say hi. We love chatting with fellow pirates. You can also reach out to us uh, to learn more about our individual and group coaching programs.
0: Ask her on about her online nutrition programs and in-person programs she's creating for teens. For the little pirates in your life, check out my, Kristen's, Abracadabra books, and my winds journal on Amazon and check out language ninjas on Instagram. You can also check out our pirate merch at our online pirate shop or on
1: Teepublic. The links to these are in the show notes to so check there. And as usual, keep creating good trouble.